Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 9, 1 through 38. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshebaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they act arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths, as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. 
and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is the word of the Lord. I know what you're thinking. Long announcements, long reading of the word. What's the sermon going to be like? You have to see. Good morning again. If you don't know who I am, my name is Alex Reguela. I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City Church, and I get the joy of filling the pulpit this morning. Occasionally, we like to give Pastor Justin, who does uh, most of the preaching here on a Sunday, a break, as well as Pastor Rob, who does a lot of the teaching outside of Sunday mornings, some time off, and somebody like myself, part-time preachers, get to come in and fill the pulpit, which, as I said, is a joy to do. It's a, it's a privilege to study the Word of God and prepare a sermon and then get up here and, and actually proclaim the Word of God. So that is, of course, the hope um, this morning. I mentioned part-time. That makes me think of a nickname that Pastor Justin gave me when I first met him. We used to work out at the same gym, a CrossFit gym, and we would always work out at the same time together, so we would see each other every day. And 
All I had to do was miss one day. And I knew what I was going to hear when I came back in the gym. Oh, what's up, part-time? This guy. What we're going to see in the sermon today, we're going to see this huge contrast between our Heavenly Father and between Pastor Justin, right? <laughs> we see God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, and we see this guy who just condemns you for not showing up to the gym. Amen. Amen. If you're just joining us in the new year, most of the last year was spent preaching through the books of, of Ezra and Nehemiah. We got through chapter 8 of Nehemiah before we took a couple weeks off for Christmas Day and for um, New Year's Day where a standalone sermon was preached. Today we're back in Nehemiah. And since it's been a couple weeks, I want to remind us of the theme of Ezra and Nehemiah and how that applies to where we are at as a church in the 2020s. We called this sermon series, Rebuilding the Ruins. In Ezra and Nehemiah's time, which is around 450 BC, God's people were in captivity in Persia. And the Persians had recently overtaken the Babylonians, who originally had conquered the Israelites and taken them into exile. So these two kind of world powers conquer the Israelites. But the reason that that happened, the reason God's people were in exile was because of their rebellion and their disobedience. They're running after other gods that God had to deal with out of his people. God told them through his prophets that he would bring a nation to conquer them and that they would be in exile for 70 years for their disobedience. After that 70 years of exile, he promised that he would bring them out of captivity. And that is where we find ourselves in the book of Ezra in Nehemiah. But what were God's people supposed to do now that they were released from captivity? we learned that they were supposed to go back to Jerusalem, to go back to their homeland and rebuild the ruins. They were supposed to go back and clean things up, go back and reestablish a God-honoring culture in their homeland, and then push that God-honoring culture out into surrounding areas around them. We would call this renewing our city, moving the kingdom of God forward, pushing back the darkness of our current secular culture that dominates society, with the light of Christian culture that is good, true, and beautiful. So we see what these people thousands of years ago, led by Ezra and Nehemiah, what they were doing as very similar to what is required for Christians to be doing now in our time. We also have some ruins that need to be rebuilt. And we are looking to these two books of the Bible for guidance on how to do that. In the previous chapter, we learned some very important stuff about that. If God's people were going to have reformation with how they functioned in their own nation, as well as be able to reform the society around them, they had to be people of the book. They had to know what the Bible said, understand what the Bible said, and then act on what the Bible said. We got to see some of that action in the form of festivals. It came to the seventh month of the year, which the book of the law told them this was the month of festivals. So they acted on that. And from these feasts, we learned that there was a time for God's people to focus on joy and celebration. Even after reading through the history of the failures of God's people, which at first, understandably, brought these people to mourning and, and weeping, Nehemiah called them away from that mourning and weeping and called them to feasting on the joy of the Lord. They were to go and eat fat and drink sweet wine and be generous to anybody who didn't have that. It was a time of celebration because of who their God was. A God who was gracious to them and a God 
who is out for their good. Well, these festivals are over as we get into chapter 9, but what we see from this chapter is just as important. What we see today, now that the celebration is over, is how God's people, hearing God's word, read and taught to them, how they are they to respond to that? How are they to respond to hearing the history of God's people? We see a prayer of confession today. And there's a lot in this chapter, but here's my prayer. It's twofold for us today. That through just walking through this text, first, that we would be awed by what we see about our God, and we would be humbled by what we see about the people. And secondly, we would be instructed by this prayer, knowing that if change is going to happen in our cities, the change that we want to see, then just like we have to be people of the book, we are also going to have to be people of prayer. We're going to have to be people of biblical prayer, like we see in this chapter. That's where we're going. Hopefully, it's going to be edifying for us. Here's my goal. 38 verses and 38 minutes. I don't know if it's going to happen, but let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you. As I said in the um, welcome, it's a privilege to be here as the people of God. It's a privilege to be called into worship. Lord, it's a privilege to confess our sins to you, knowing that those sins are going to be absolved. So we thank you for experiencing that. It's a privilege to profess our faith and to sing to you and to hear your God word, hear your word read to us, Lord. And, and now we want to hear your word preached. Lord, so I ask for your grace and your help upon me as I try to preach the word of God, Lord, boldly. And I pray that you would be with the people as they hear, as they listen, Lord. Would they receive the word of God and would you be magnified in their minds and hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you can open up your Bibles to Nehemiah 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the back of the seats, hopefully, or it's going to be up on the screen. We're going to start, of course, in verse 1. But here's the lens that I want us to see this through. Coming off of many days where they heard God's word read and explained, they were reminded of the mess that they got into, right? They were reminded of why they were in exile. All of the things that happened, how they were walking away from the Lord, they were reminded of that. And what do they want? They want to change, right? They want to repent. They know that if things are going to go well for them moving forward, then they need to be right with God. So what do they do? Verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So as we already said, it's the seventh month, the month of festivals, but we've now come to the 24th day and these festivals are over. So the 24th day more than likely is just one day after all of these festivals were, were over. We see now that the, the Israelites are assembled again together, but it's different from the assemblies during the festivals. They were no longer feasting during these festivals or during this assembly, but they were fasting and as we so commonly see in our day and age, they were in sackcloth and had dirt on their heads. We don't see that very often in our day and age anymore, do we? But it was an act that was common to the Israelites. But here's what it was doing. It was to show the seriousness about their remorse over their sin. Right? They weren't just going through the motions with this assembly. They had a contrition about them. And they wanted to show the seriousness that they had over their sin. What else do we see? Verse 2, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood up and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So we see this assembly was just the offspring of Israel. There were no foreigners allowed. 
These would be people who were not Jews or who had not been adopted into the family of God. So this would be their church members only assembly. And this was to magnify the importance of being set apart, being sanctified for the Lord. Part of why they were in exile was because of not setting themselves apart. Rather, they wanted to kind of integrate themselves into the culture and they were living just like everyone else in the culture were living. So as they start this act of repentance, they want to move away from everything that got them in trouble in the first place. Then as they stood, assembled together before God, they confessed their sins, but not just their own sins, but look at what else. They don't disconnect themselves from their ancestors. They also confess the sins of their fathers, it says. How well would this go over in our individualistic, private, American evangelicalism today? Where most people think that Christianity is just an individualistic religion. It's not. It's not primarily individualistic. We are part of a people of God, right? We are part of the church and we are connected to the people of God in history. So most people know nothing of this type of worship, but the Bible shows us that there is this connection, even an intimate relationship that the people of God now have with the people of God that came before them. It shows us that we as God's people now are part of the same story that includes God's people of the past and how the people of the past lived and what they did has an impact on us and we should recognize that and own it. Verse three, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God for a quarter of the day and for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So they come back to the book, right? They come back to the word of God. And then look, I love it. They have a six hour gathering. By a quarter, it means three hours since they had 12 hours of daylight. This is probably a good time to let you guys know about some more changes that are happening with Sacred City Church. Just kidding. But with this six hours, they read from the book as they did during the, first, the festivals for the first three hours. And then for the last three hours, they made confession and worshiped the Lord. So what I want us to see from that is the second half of the gathering was in response to the first half of the gathering. When they read from the book of the law, they were reminded or made aware maybe for the first time, depending on who they were, the history of Israel. And when they seen that, they realized that they had a lot to confess. They had a lot to repent over. Verses four and five. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua and Bani and Cadmiel and Shebaniah and Buni and Sherebiah and Bani and Chanani or Shanane. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> any, any Martin fans out there? And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathahiah said, stand up and bless the Lord your God. From everlasting to everlasting, blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So we see this list of names split up into two groups, two groups of Levites, but some have some, they have crossover, meaning that some Levites had multiple roles within the worship service. Some of them were just there to cry out, signifying kind of this mourning over their sin. There was a part of the gathering, this assembly, where they were mourning and grieving over their sin. And then others were to call the people to bless the Lord. Some of them had both of those roles. 
But here's a little nugget of truth that we can't spend a lot of time on, but I don't want to miss it. Verse 5 shows us what repentance looks like when true conviction of sin has happened. How do these people start off this confession? They're broken over their sin, which leads them to crying out to the Lord. They know the seriousness of their sin, but they also know the nature of God, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Words right out of Nehemiah 9. So they know that feeling the weight of their sin can never be disconnected from the grace of God. Church, we need to hear that. Because this is more true for us who are in Christ Jesus than it was for them. Paul in the book of Romans says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, if condemnation is what you get when you are made aware of your sin, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's the enemy. But if we can bless the Lord when we are made aware of our sin, own the sin that we have committed, and then confess that sin simultaneously as we're blessing the Lord, then that's the Holy Spirit. That's true conviction. Let us now consider this prayer. Verse six, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. What do we see here? They say, you are the Lord, that's Yahweh, which is the proper name of the God of Israel. These people were assembled together to properly worship their God and to again commit to being as far away as possible from all of the sinful and idolatrous things that they and their ancestors had done in the past. So here, these Levites start with establishing who God is first. They say, you are Yahweh, you alone. There is no other God out there. They're saying, we aren't going to take just a little bit of you, God. Just the stuff that we like about you. Then go to some other gods for other things to satisfy the rest of our needs. No, we aren't going to do that. We are going to look to you alone. You alone is who we have sinned against. You alone is who we are going to look to for change. So we see here that this isn't just a confession of their sins, but it's also a profession of their faith. Then what do we see? We see that Yahweh is the creator and sustainer of all things. He created the earth and preserves it, but not just the earth, also heaven, described here as the heaven of heavens. But he didn't just create heaven and earth, he created all that is in them. Something that was and is fun for Emily and I to do is to go through the first few questions of this catechism booklet that we have. You may have the same one, but we like to go through it with our younger children and hear the answers to the second question. The first question is, who made you? Answer being God, of course. They always nailed that one. The second one is, what else did God make? Answer being, all things. Well, this is how it would go with them. What else would God make? Giraffes, elephants, porcupines. Right, not exactly what we're looking for out of a catechism answer, but it's true nonetheless, isn't it? It is easy to see little things like this as unimportant, but for these kids, it's extremely important. Like A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For little kids, when they think about God, 
and they know that God created drafts, that's planting a seed that will grow into a mighty tree of knowledge, Lord willing. But here's the thing, knowing that God created all things and sustains all things isn't just important to get a question right on a test, right? It isn't just some cool fact to know. Knowing that God is the creator and preserver of all things is necessary for the Christian because it speaks to his authority over all things. It says he's in charge. It says he's the one that sets the standard for whatever it is in creation. It says that he's the one that makes the rules. Control and authority are his. Do we have any problem with that in 2023? Do we have any problem with God being the one in authority? Let's just start with Christians. Do we think that all those who claim Christ from across the planet could assemble together in 2023, all in unison, like these Israelites here in Nehemiah, and all boldly proclaim together that God is the creator and sustainer of all things? Could we give him that title of authority? I don't think we could. I don't think that would happen in churches across the world. I don't think it would happen in churches across our community. It grieves us to frequently mention how there are churches across our community that no longer preach the gospel. And that is true. But you know what came before that? Churches that rejected God having ultimate authority and that authority coming because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. When you reject that, nothing else good follows. Here's a paraphrase from something Doug Wilson has said when speaking about the doctrine of creation. When God created the world and laid its foundations, he was also laying the foundations for how we should think about everything. Creation is the foundational doctrine for every other doctrine. We can't understand how this world was created and how it functions without knowing what the Bible says about how God created the world. But we also can't understand economics, politics, families, relationships, conflict, and everything else that we see in creation. This is because God is the authority in all of those things, but he doesn't have that authority if he's not the creator of this world and life. These people wanting to repent, to turn from how they were living and start anew, start in this prayer with affirming God has authority and that authority reaches every corner of creation. There isn't a square inch that he didn't create, therefore there's not a square inch that he doesn't have authority over. He is great and glorious, and like we see in that verse, the army of heaven shows us that he deserves our worship. We owe him our life because he's the creator. We owe him our loyalty because he's the creator. And if anything good and true and beautiful is going to happen through us in our cities like we want to happen, we have to be people who know and believe that deep into our souls. And what this prayer in Nehemiah is showing us is if we are going to be those type of people, then we will be people who remind ourselves of that constantly by lifting up that truth to our God consistently in prayer. Next we see beyond just being a creator, we see that God is a covenant maker. We see that in verses seven and eight. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. 
you found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So God chose Abram and gave him a new name, Abraham, so that he could remember God's promise to make him the father of a multitude of nations. That's what his name means. And then what's it say? It says he made a covenant with him. What's a covenant? A covenant is a solemn bond, sovereignly administered between two or more persons with attendant blessings and curses. So God, as the sovereign one, makes this formal bond with Abraham, who was the other party, and through this bond establishes a people for himself. Now, this isn't the first covenant that God made with people. In the very beginning, God established the covenant of creation with Adam, which thankfully in our next series, the series of origins, as we go through Genesis 1 through 3, I think we'll see some more of this. But for our purposes today, I want us to try and understand the importance of covenant here. If we start with God before creation, who is totally happy and lacking nothing in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God not because he needed anything, but out of love, decides to create this world, and again, everything in it. But here's something to think about. You know he could have just left it alone after that. Had no interaction or relationship with it at all. Had no relationship with us at all. But he doesn't do that. He condescends and he makes a covenant with man. He makes a covenant with Adam, the covenant head. This bond, this covenant, where he promises the opportunity for man to enter into God's glorious presence in the highest heavens. The opportunity for man to enter into God's glorious presence in the highest heavens. And that was a reward for perfect, personal, and complete obedience on Adam's behalf. That was the offer. It's the greatest, the most beautiful, most amazing, whatever adjective you want to use, opportunity that human beings have ever had. It's what this world and life are all about. Unending fellowship with God himself. But see this. As amazing as that opportunity was, this fellowship that we can have, unending fellowship with God, can only happen if God makes that covenant with man. It's the only way that God chooses to relate to people. Now, Adam and Eve obviously screwed that up, right? They broke the covenant with God when they disobeyed him in the garden. But then right away, along with the curses that the Adam and Eve received for their disobedience, we see the graciousness of our God as he makes another covenant with man, as he makes another covenant with Adam when he says that the offspring of Eve will crush the head of Satan. Here's what's being communicated there. God was promising to relate to his people through the perfect, personal, and complete obedience of a second Adam, which of course is Jesus Messiah. From that point forward, there's this Christ-centeredness to the Bible. We see types and shadows of him and his work in the Older Testament, and then we see him come into the flesh in the Newer Testament. One of these types of Christ is Abraham, like we see in our passage. Abraham was the federal head of this covenant, the one representing the people before our God. 
like Christ is the federal head of the new covenant, the one representing people before our God. The promises of scripture that were given to Abraham that we've seen, that we read in our passage, were fulfilled in Christ. All of it was fulfilled in Christ. All of it was pointing to what we were given in Christ. Christ, the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent and to make a way for people to enter into that unending fellowship with God so that God could be glorified and people could enjoy him. It's an amazing truth. But again, none of that happens without a covenant-making God. So he's not just a creator, he is a covenant maker. And look, verse eight ends with affirming that God kept his promise. God kept his end of the covenant. He gave Abraham's offspring the land, which means that he's not only a covenant-making God, he's a covenant-keeping God as well. Church, without this, we would have no hope for gospel change in our culture. The change that we want to see in our culture, we would have no hope because why? We are phenomenal at breaking covenant with God. Just like these Israelites were, we constantly walk away. Him keeping his covenant with us through Christ, through the person and work of Christ, should give us a humble confidence, not in of ourselves, but in him as we go about this life, striving to move the kingdom of God forward. We have no hope without God keeping his end of the covenant, Christ keeping that covenant for us. And again, prayer is a great way to remind ourselves of this truth. Next, we see that God is a God who sees, hears, and delivers. We see that in verse 9 through 12. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. We see God here saw the affliction of his people. He doesn't turn his face ever away from his people. He always knows what's going on. But here's what's crazy to me. How long were these people afflicted in Egypt? 400 years they were afflicted in Egypt. Sometimes we think if we throw a prayer up to God one or two times and he doesn't answer, then that must mean that he doesn't care about us or doesn't see us, doesn't see our struggle or doesn't hear our prayer. Well, I know it's tough for us as 21st century Americans to even wait five minutes for something, but these people waited 400 years for their help. Yet what do their descendants proclaim? That God is a God who sees. At least in this prayer, we don't see them complain about timing. We don't see them doubting God because he has this history of taking too long to do things. For them, something that took 400 years to happen was an evidence of the goodness and grace of God. He is a God who sees and keeps his promises. Again, we need to hear that. Church, if we are going to have to, we are going to have to look to this and believe this if we are going to be faithful to our vision. We desire that God would stay faithful to his word and completely renew our cities. 
Make the knowledge of the Lord cover our cities like the waters cover the sea. But we are committed to that long term. Meaning, most of us in this room, or even all of us in this room, may not see that promise from God fulfilled in our lifetime. But that doesn't mean he doesn't see. That doesn't mean he doesn't see the negative world we live in and what's happening. He doesn't, doesn't mean he doesn't hear us cry out to him for change in that negative world. He does see, he does hear, and he will move. And we have to believe that. Verses 9 through 12 also show us that God, when God did decide to act, he performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and Pharaoh's kingdom. At the time, that was the most powerful king and empire in the known world. No one in all of creation could challenge the Egyptians. But the creator, the one with all of the authority in, in heaven and on earth, in order to make a name for himself, it says, decided to deliver his people from Egyptian bondage. This should give us confidence that nothing in this world is more powerful than our God. In the New Testament, we hear that nothing can pluck us from his hand, right? Nothing in us, nothing outside of us can take us from him. Nothing is more powerful than him. If he wants to deliver, he will deliver. Commentator Wallace Ben says that the memory of this deliverance is hard, what was hardwired into God's people down through the generations. The, this act of love and mercy made them who they were as God's redeemed people. As they looked back at what happened of where they were at in Egypt, and they seen that God rescued them from that world power, that was powerful for them to look back and for that to change how they lived in their, in their time. You know what's more powerful than that? The ultimate act of love and mercy. The ultimate act of deliverance. More so than just defeating a world power, we have something bigger. Christ's substitutionary death for our sins on the cross. In that, he didn't just defeat some world power, but he defeated sin, death, and the devil. Greater enemies than Egypt ever was. Enemies that Egypt were pointing to. That act of love and mercy is what makes us who we are as God's redeemed people. But here's the question, is that hardwired into us? Is seeing what God has done in the past for us through sending his son and in his life and death and his resurrection, what he's done for us in the past, is that hardwired into us? And will that continue to be hardwired into the generations to come? If it is, and if it will be, again, this chapter is showing us we have to remind ourselves of that through calling out to God in our prayers. Verse 13 brings us back to covenant, this time speaking of the Mosaic covenant, where God's people were given the Ten Commandments, the law of life. Verses 13 and 14. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. God again shows his goodness through his love and care for his people by showing them the best way to live. Right laws, right rules, true laws, good statutes in his holy Sabbath day of rest. He was showing his people that they don't have to look anywhere else. 
So he not only created them, he not only covenanted with them, he not only delivered them and rescued them from bondage, he now says, I'm gonna go and show you how to live. I'm gonna give you my law, which is based on my character so that you know how to live the good life. If you want to enjoy life and be satisfied, they had nowhere else to look. They only had to look to him and his ways. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. We see again God's continued providence throughout history. He meets their basic needs of life, both materially and spiritually, and provides guidance for them where to, on where to go in the future. So again, all of these things that God provided for them, all of these things that should bring us to awe, right? We should be awed by who God is and what he's like. So are we? Are we awed by who God is? Because if they're not, we're not, I can start over. But seriously, if we aren't, then read it again, right? If we aren't just blown away by what God has done through history, then read it again. I think we miss that much of the time. There seems to be this desire for many Christians to always just have this amazing experience with God, whatever that means. And they don't, if they don't get it, then there's this dryness to their faith. Well, I pray that all of us have those amazing experiences with God, but the ordinary way that God works, the ordinary way that God sets us on fire for him, the ordinary way he gives us peace and encourages us is through his means of grace, his ordinary means of grace of reading our Bible and praying. Read and study who God is and respond to him in prayer with praising him for who he is and what he's done. And do that over and over and over again and see what our walk is like with him. See if we still have that dryness to our faith or see if he does something in us through his ordinary means of grace. We now come to his people, which instead of awe, we get humility. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. So again, even after all that God had done for them, created them, covenanted with them, delivered them, provided for them, the people respond with stiffened necks and disobedience. And this just wasn't mistakes that they were making. This wasn't just lack of perfection in their obedience. This was willful, selfish disobedience with no desire to change. Verse 17 tells us specifically that they didn't recognize what God had done in the past. And because of this, they had a desire to go back to Egypt and be slaves again. Hard to believe. But why did they get there? I had a brother recently tell me that MCs didn't do anything for him. He didn't think that he needed MC gathering for his discipleship. Outside of all the other reasons that that's a crazy thing to say. If we just take one piece of our MC gathering that happens every week where we go around the room and we ask for evidence of grace to be shared, we would be fighting what the Israelites were dealing with here. And therefore, that one thing makes it worth our time. We so easily fail to focus our minds on who God is and what he's like and what he's done and what he's doing in our lives and what he's doing in the people around us 
Hearing God's evidence of grace on a weekly basis, regardless of how small we may think they are, is powerful and necessary for the Christian. These people stopped reminding themselves of that. They stopped reminding themselves of God's grace and what he had done for them in the past. So what did they do? They left him and they started running after lesser things. We would do well to learn from their mistakes because the same thing will happen to us. If we don't constantly remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done, we will run after other things as well. Run after other things that will never satisfy us, never bring us the joy, never bring us the peace, never give us what we need. But even when we do, let's look back at our God and how he responds. At the end of verse 17, it says, but you, which is in stark contrast to the but they's of these verses. It says, but you are a God ready to forgive. How in the world? These people constantly turn from him, but he's a God who is ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, and he did not forsake them, it says. Starting here and for the next 13 verses, we see God's unbelievable patience with people. And this is how I'm actually going to try to get to that 38 minutes because we're not going to walk through every one of these verses. We're going to try to summarize these next three verses with this. With the fallen people of God, we see this consistent pattern. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, you're familiar with this. God gives his grace and blessing to his people and the people respond with rebellion and then they experience distress. God forgives and restores them. They forget him and rebel against him again. This shows the foolishness, the depravity, and the spiritual amnesia of us and the undeserved patience and grace of our God. They make a golden calf to worship, it says. He responds with forgiveness and guiding them through the wilderness. He blesses them with military victories, land, and offspring. They cast his law behind their backs and go ahead and live their own way. He sends prophets to them to try to warn them. They respond with killing those prophets. This brings suffering to the hand of their, through the hand of their enemies, which causes them to then cry out to God again. He hears them again and rescues them through saviors that had to finally make them change. But it doesn't. They respond with rebellion again, and the cycle continues to go on. The people are stiff-necked and disobedient, and God is gracious, merciful, and patient. Reminded of the cross chart, right? Through this, we see continued how amazing and holy God is, right? How gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love God is. And we see continued sinfulness, the depth of the sinfulness of human beings. And we need something to bring those things together. With this history, if we focus on the people, it's a sad read. But if we focus on God, what else could give us more hope, peace, and joy? Enjoy as I was studying this because it's been mentioned in the past. I think it's one of the things that's going to be instrumental in winning the culture over for Christ. The reason these Israelites ran away from God is because they thought that they could go find joy somewhere else. It's no different with us. 
And it's no different with the people of the culture around us. Everybody is searching for joy somewhere, but nobody gets to find it unless they're Christians. Only Christians can truly find joy, and that's what everyone else in the culture is searching for. So let us, as Christians, look nowhere else. If we can be people, listen, if we can be people who are not just obedient to our God, but joyfully obedient to our God, let's watch the culture change. If they can look in at these people who are searching for joy can look at it in our lives and see that these people not only obey the law of God, but they joyfully obey the law of God. They have joy in their life, which is what I want. Then I should look and see how they're living. And I guarantee the culture will change. As people see our joy in our life, see how we live, the culture will change because they'll want it. They will desire the same thing. We're almost done. We have one more thing to say about this prayer, and then we'll close. The next thing we see in biblical prayer is a petition. Verse 32. See how I did that? Skipped all the way to verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people. Since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. So these people look to God and say, God, look at everything that we have been through as a people. All the hardship, all the suffering, all the distress. And this is all we're asking. Let it not seem little to you. They continue in verse 33 and say, even though we deserved all of it, Everything you gave us, we deserved all of it. Even though we were wrong for turning from you every single time that we did it, and you were righteous in all that you have done for us and with us, we now ask you, God. Again, there was a contrition about this. There was a humility about them. We now ask you, God. They petition their God for his grace and his help again. Please, God, just like you saw the bondage of our people in Egypt, See the bondage that we are in now. I'm sure for them, they thought it was going to be the last time they needed to ask for rescue, but it wasn't. The pattern of turning from God after he is merciful to his people is a pattern that still continues today. Just shows us how much we are unlike him. But these people do the only thing that they could. They cry out to the God who has been gracious to them in the past. They knew that there was nowhere else to look. They knew that they weren't going to change on their own. They cry out to the God who has been gracious to them in the past. They remind him of their current distresses and get specific with what's happening. They let God know, even though he already knows. They say, God, this is what's happening. But what's interesting to me is they don't outright ask for God to move. We don't know exactly why. It doesn't say that here, but it seems that they've been reminded of everything that God has done in the past and seeing that God has this great history of bringing them out of distress and blessing them. They are totally fine with leaving up to God what rescue looks like. They trust that God will be consistent with his character and whatever he chooses to do. That's hard. 
that's hard to see God's ways as better than our ways most of the time. We think we have an idea of what God should do, how God should rescue us. But as we see here, we can trust because he's good, because he's gracious, because he's merciful, abounding in steadfast love, that we can trust that however he handles it is the way to handle it. So instead of crying out with specifics for what they want God to do, they decide to focus on what they can do. Verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Again, it's not just words that they're saying. We make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So they go back to the covenant. We will learn more about this covenant in chapter 10 next week, but what does this act of covenant making with God show us? It shows us that these people understood that their only hope in life and in death is that they are not their own, but they belong body and soul to our Lord Jesus Christ. We all probably know and love Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who could be against us? Well, these people understood the opposite of that. If God is against us, then who could be for us? They knew moving forward that they could either experience more of God's blessings or they could experience more of God's curses. They obviously wanted God's blessings, so what do they do? They come before him, gather together as one people with contrite hearts, and they praise him. They confess to him. They petition to him. And as we see in this last verse, make a promise to him. A beautiful picture of how the people of God are to respond when the word of God convicts them of their sin. A beautiful picture of how they are to respond when the word of God convicts them of their sin. When they see that they've walked away from God, what do they do? They come back to him with contrite hearts. They praise him. They confess to him. They petition to him. And they promise, make a promise to him. They renew the covenant. This is an example that we would be right to follow. And it's, it's a reason why we set up our service the way that we do. This here is a covenant renewal gathering. But as I close, I want to, us to see something that we, have to, that we have as the people of God now that they didn't have as the people of God then. When you look at this chapter as it recounts the whole history of Israel and highlights their stiff necks and their rebellion against God, as well as the history of God's grace and mercy and patience, although it helps us to see God properly and should bring us to worship him, it also helps us to see and understand why Christ had to come and gives us a deeper appreciation for what Christ actually had to do for us. Without him, we would be experiencing many more blessings in this life and, of course, the ultimate curse of eternal damnation. So please hear me saying that. Hear me preaching that, right? That good news. But what else happened when Christ came? What else happened when Christ came is this cycle of walking away from God, experiencing curses, and then crying out to God and rescuing him, only to see him walk away changed. You see, before Christ came, that never, they never really made any headway in the kingdom of God moving forward, right? If you grafted, it just kind of looked like this. But since then, the Bible says that Christ is making all things new. This means that when Christ came in the middle of history, this kind of never getting anywhere for God's people, that thing stopped. 
with, when Christ came, the new covenant came, and the prophet Jeremiah tells us that the new covenant will not be like the old covenant that was given, that God made with Moses and his people, which they broke. Rather, instead of writing his laws on tablets of stone for them to obey, that he will write it on their hearts and he will put it within them so that they can obey. Church, that prophecy of Jeremiah has been fulfilled. Christ has come and he has brought the new covenant. And from that point forward, through people with those new hearts, God has been moving his kingdom forward ever since. He's been bringing his will to earth as it is in heaven. And he will continue to do that. Is it all going perfectly? Of course not. There's still this failure on our part and this need for forgiveness and rescue on God's part. But instead of never getting anywhere, we are now moving up and to the right. It ebbs and flows, but we are moving towards everything being made new in this already but not yet time that we are living in. This means that we can have faith that change is going to happen. We can have faith in this life that change is going to happen in us, right? We are going to look more like Christ as he works on our hearts and minds and through our hands, even if that's hard to see. Even if we doubt that that's going to happen. The other night at our MC gathering, we went around the room and we shared what we wanted to see God do in 2023 with us personally and with the, court, the church corporately. Many of those things came back to sin in people's lives. People were wanting victory over some sinful pattern in their life. Well, Christian, if that's you, believe God for it. Believe that he's making all things new, including you. Believe he's going to bring the change. Believe that he's going to finish the work that he's already started by giving you his spirit. But he's also going to do things in the culture. He's also going to renew this place. Again, our vision that would, it, that would happen is, our vision is that that would happen here through us discipling this community, but God's going to do it everywhere. Even if that's hard to see, which I know it is. Even with all the craziness that we see in this world where boys can be girls and girls can be boys and both of them can be cats if they want. Even though it seems like we are in a significant time of ebb currently, let's know and believe that God is going to do a work through us that is going to bring gospel change in this world. Our job is to strive for faithfulness, repent when we fail, renew our covenant when we walk away from it, and have faith that he's going to keep us to the end. Which is what we do every week. Renewing the covenant is really what this gathering is all about. And we get to specifically do that in a tangible way now. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and cup and said that this is my body and my blood. The elements of the new covenant. The covenant that would change everything about the world. Take and eat, he says, in remembrance of me. It was supposed to point us back to him. We get to see, we get to smell, we get to touch, we get to taste the elements this morning. All to point us back to Christ, the one who made the covenant possible and the one who makes the change possible that we want to see. So we get to come. Right? We get to be changed by him because he nourishes us through this table. Let's have faith for that this morning.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for who you are. We thank you that you are creator. We thank you that you're a covenant maker. We thank you that you deliver your people. We thank you that you are a provider. You give us everything that we need. You give us your law. You've given us your son. You've given us your spirit. You've given us brothers and sisters in Christ. You've given us the church. You've given us your sacraments. What else do we need? We need nothing else for the joy that we're looking for. Lord, but we fail to believe that most of the time. So we're thankful to come here this morning and be reminded of who you are and what you've done for us and how much you love and care for us, Lord. So I pray that you would take these truths down of seeing who you are. Take it from our head and take it to our heart and change us as a people, Lord, so that we can go and live for you joyfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.